electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange. This is Conversations with Kelly, where I take a deep dive with an expert on a topic I'm particularly interested in. And my guest today is sort of one of the reasons I started this podcast. Jonathan Chaplin is head of the U.S. communications team at New Street Research, which he joined from Credit Suisse. Basically, he's the guy who knows everything about 5G, spectrum, cable and broadband, and the future of the media industry as we know it. It's hard to delve deeply into these topics in a short TV conversation, so this is my chance to pick his brain about some of today's hottest topics. That is, if he can give us half an hour in between covering Verizon's earnings today. So with that, Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Kelly. It's, there's so much to, I mean, is this one of the busiest, craziest times in your career or is it always like this? No, this is unusually hectic in the <laughs> context of the industry. It's, it's, I feel like there are more unknowns facing the, uh, the participants in the wireless and broadband markets um, than, than I can remember in, in recent history. And in the early days of my career, there was a lot of uncertainty as we were going through deregulation of the industry and, and unclarity around how um, reg regulation would impact particularly the wireline industry. But from, the, the, from a competitive dynamics perspective, um, I've never seen as much uncertainty and turmoil um, as we're seeing in the industry at the moment. It's, a, it's actually a ton of fun to cover. I was going to say, it makes me feel better because it's dizzying to me. And I think, well, I don't know if it's always, even just the term wireline, like that, I, I can't even remember the last time I heard that, right? 20 years ago, that was everything. It was all about these big phone line companies and what was going to happen with mobile. And now it's like phone line, who even talks about that? Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's making a, 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 a comeback with, with broadband. Um, but even the, the lines between wireless and broadband are are getting mixed now as Verizon makes a huge push into fixed wireless broadband. It, um, it was a it was a big theme on their conference call today. Oh, was it? And do you mind just mentioning what you think is the most relevant thing here? And in you know, in fairness, like you can see, my my familiarity with these terms is superficial. But yeah, so if wireline encompasses broadband and all of what we used to think of as you know the phone on the wall and our house companies are now internet providers. But at the same time, they're mobile phone providers who are like they're they're competing against each other. It's very confusing. So tell me, what is the game plan for Verizon? So Verizon's got a um, the 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 planet's leading uh, mobile business. Uh, so they've got the, the the most profitable, most valuable uh, mobile business on the planet, and it's that. Business is doing doing reasonably well. It's growing revenues at a decent pace, more or less keeping market share stable, but with forty percent of the market in a um, in a in a pretty competitive market, they're in a in a very strong position. Their big challenge in mobile is just hanging on to the the position they've got as T-Mobile improves their network and as the cable companies get into the industry, 
and you know, in a in a few quarters, as Dish starts rolling out a, a new network with a with a new set of products, in fixed they've got an an old wireline enterprise business which is which is declining, and um, doesn't have have great future prospects, and then they've got a fiber business that they build in the northeast, um, which is is primarily a broadband business, which is is growing at a at a at, at a decent rate. And what I think they have recognized is that the 10 years from now, the, the, the idea of getting wireless from one company and fixed broadband from another company um, will seem quaint. These hmm. are more or less the same product. They do the same thing. They're just served over different networks and it, it's all gonna ultimately become integrated. And so Verizon's been trying to figure out how they deal with the 80% of the country where they don't have a fiber network and they're going to do that with fixed wireless broadband um so they're they're deploying all of the spectrum which is sort of the 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 thing that i think you're most focused on today on on this po podcast kelly um in with 5g um it gives them a lot more capacity and with that extra capacity not only will they be able to offer faster speeds on mobile devices but they can start to offer a home broadband product as well very interesting. I think we have Verizon in this house. I'm looking over at the modem over there. I'm yeah. pretty sure we have Verizon, you know, internet, <laughs> yep. which I think means that they also give us our TV package. Yep. I mean, I work in this industry and I, I can barely keep it straight these days, you know? So basically what you're saying is, you know, fast forward five or 10 years and people are only going to be thinking about where do I get internet and TV and all that from and there's basically going to be a couple big brand names that they think of. They won't be concerned about the delivery mechanism or any of that. It's just which company am I getting internet from and communications from? And who's it going to come down to? Verizon? I mean, where does that leave Comcast, my employer? So it's, it, uh, I think that's exactly the way I think about it. So I think in 10 years, uh, communications net networks are all going to be fiber-based and all devices are going to connect to those networks wirelessly the the companies the cable companies like comcast and charter are actually in a great position because the most difficult piece of infrastructure to build and run is the fixed infrastructure um, and comcast has has very good fixed infrastructure across their entire footprint and they're overlaying that now with wireless actually leveraging verizon's network to begin with and at some point they'll build, build their own network alongside that. But it's a lot easier if you've got fixed infrastructure to add wireless than to go, the other, to go in the other direction. I think you're exactly right. At the end of this game, there'll probably be three, maybe four national network providers. Um, and the cable companies will almost certainly be one of them because I think they're, they're in the strongest starting position. And then you've got to fight for the last two or three spots between AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, and Dish. And none of those co companies have an assured place um, at, the, at the end of the game. Verizon is the dominant force in wireless today, but with, um, with not a lot of fixed infrastructure. And I, I don't think that their fixed wireless broadband product will be competitive over the long term. If they if they want to stay in the game, they've actually got to put a lot of a lot more money into fiber. AT and T kind of gets this, and they're upgrading um, their fixed infrastructure to fiber as quickly as they can. Um, T Mobile 
is sort of the furthest behind from a fixed perspective. And so people contemplate whether they will buy or sell to the cable companies. Um, and then Dish is the sort of the brand new disruptive player uh, in the game where, um, you know, everyone's excited, very excitedly watching how their, their new network develops. They don't have a fiber network either, but their cost structure is so much lower than everybody else's in wireless that they've still got the ability to be disruptive. So it, it's gonna be an exciting fight for sure. Very interesting. So we should be thinking about this as, you know, the, the remaining big players, and we always see this in industries as they mature, it's usually kind of a big four. Um, they will need both fixed and wireless assets. And so those combinations are gonna be the most productive. Can you yep. sort of, it's gonna sound ridiculous. What is fiber? Right. Can you sort of explain a little bit when we talk about the fixed piece of this, you know, in order to understand the investment implications of having these assets or not, what are we talking about in terms of installation and build out? Yeah, so in the very late 90s, um, the, it, we, we, the, 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 the industry discovered broadband. So up until that point, you could get the Internet over a dial up connection, which, which was very slow. Um, I, I mean, very well remember. Exactly. I think there, there are a good number of your listeners, Kelly, that um, may never have heard that sound. <laughs> um, the, but the, in very late 90s, um, uh, the, the industry discovered that it could repurpose its existing infrastructure to provide faster internet connections. And the telecom companies did it over their copper infrastructure using DSL. Um, and the cable companies did it over their, the, the, the infrastructure that they were use, using to provide you with video using a, a standard called DOCSIS. Mm -hmm. uh, in the early days, the, this was much faster than dial-up, but it was pretty slow. You were maybe getting uh, two or three megabits per second um, um, uh, broadband speeds either over DSL or over, over cable. Over the course of the last 20 years, both sides have upgraded their infrastructure significantly to provide faster and faster speeds. So the two to three megabits per second at cable is went to a gigabit per second as they upgraded their infrastructure. DSL topped out at about 75 megabits per second, maybe 100 megabits per second, if you lived very close to a, a, a Verizon or an AT&T office. So what the telco, telecom companies needed to do was replace that old copper infrastructure with fiber to the home. Um, fiber is basically fiber optic cables that they, they connect all the way to your home that allow them to deliver speeds of, re, up until recently, up to a gigabit per second. But as of yesterday, AT&T is now offering uh, two gigabits per second and even five gigabits per second to wow. customers in certain markets. Fiber is the, is the end state infrastructure. That is state of the art. Uh, once you've deployed it, you can upgrade it to faster and faster speeds in a very efficient and scalable manner. The, th that's where the, the industry is ultimately going. About 40% of the country today has fiber to the home um, uh, or, or can get fiber to the home. Uh, and that probably becomes sort of 65% of the country over the course of the next few years. 
um, it, it's it's very expensive to deploy it. It costs the telco at least a thousand dollars per home uh, wow. to get fiber near your home, and then a, another five hundred dollars to connect it. And so they've got to be confident of being able to get a lot of broadband revenue out of you for a long time in order to make that a good investment. Wow, because it's not like, I mean, that's very interesting because in a way these companies are handing me $1,500 worth of, you know, technological setup in the hopes that, you know, over our, <laughs> over the life of our contract, we're paying them, I don't know, a hundred something dollars a month. And that, you know, that is an incredible investment. $1,500 a home is a big number. And obviously I can you know, understand why in a lot, a lot more rural areas like where I grew up, the economics just aren't as strong. Yeah, and that's where the the government is coming to the rescue with the infrastructure bill. There's $42.5 billion in the bill to get broadband connectivity to areas that have never had it. Um, and I actually think that'll that'll close the broadband gap for 10 million homes that have never had broadband before if it's deployed thoughtfully and efficiently by, by the states. <laughs> no comment. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully they can figure it out and get it right. So let me kind of like pivot from this to ask um, a very self-interested question, but one that underlies a lot of what's going on with the rise of streaming and everything else. Is there a, a powerful economic case for dis internet distribution companies to own media assets? In other words, Comcast, is both an internet delivery company and an owner of a bunch of channels that they can deliver on that. And there's been some debate over the years about whether that's a superior model or not. It seems like the consensus right now is that it is, but do you expect it to stay that way? So I think the answer is unequivocally no, Kelly. I don't think really? distribution assets and media assets belong together. AT&T tried this when they bought Time Warner Cable, I mean, Time Warner Entertainment, Mm -hmm. uh, they just they're just in the process of unwinding that deal. Verizon bought a bunch of media assets, and they were talking today on the call about um, why uh, uh, results in 2022 won't be that great because they've sold those they've now sold those media assets. the The outlier here is Comcast that owns both a, a cable business and a, a media business. And I actually think both of those businesses would be worth more if they were independent. The cable investors in cable assets love the, the, those businesses because they generate an enormous amount of free cash flow. Um, and cable companies can use that free cash flow to pay dividends and buy back, buy back a lot of stock. Um, me, the media industry is going through tremendous transformation right now. And what media assets need is massive investment to keep pace with the kind of investment that Disney and Netflix are making. The, 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 it, 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 it's, it's difficult for the rest of the industry to keep up. By having a media business and a, a cable business together in one company, um, you're, you're sort of creating a conflict in that the media asset needs a lot of investment. Cable investors want to see cash return to them. And, and so you can't make, you can't give both businesses what they need um, to maximize their value. I actually think Comcast ought to, um, ought to split the businesses. I know the management team disagrees with me vehemently. They have no interest in, in splitting NBCU from the cable business. 
but I, I think they, they would be better off and uh, investors would be better off if they did. Why do you think management is so committed to this model, which, you know, if we go back, whatever it is, 10 years now, when they bought, let's say, NBC Universal from General Electric, they bought it under duress, the asset, I mean, you know, they assigned it, I remember, you know, they basically gave it a, a value of zero. And it turned out over the past decade to have a tremendous value to the company. So I totally understand that they say, listen, you know, this turned into a big upside surprise, but why do you think the next 10 years might be very different? So the, the team at Comcast has done a phenomenal job with NBCU. They took an asset that was broken and, and really transformed it over the course of the last 10 years. And they get a, a good deal of kudos for that. It was against a backdrop of a, a media industry that's done extraordinarily well. So if you look at NBCU in the context of media overall, it's done um, it's done a, you know a little bit better than the rest of the industry. But the the overall industry over the time frame that that Comcast owned NBCU did did very well. The the fact that NBCU has has generated so much value over the course of the last decade has nothing to do with the with the cable business. Uh, it would have done that well with this management team. If it, if it was completely separate from the cable business. And so it's, it's the fact that, that NBCU has done well, um, I, I don't think should be attributed at all to the fact that it's, it's contained in one company with a cable business. It's, 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 been, it's been run extremely well. Mm -hmm. A lot of the management team for NBCU over the course of the last decade has been separate from the management team over it at, at cable. So for most of the last decade, the NBCU business was under Steve Burke, um, who had very little to do with the cable business after taking over it at, at NBCU um, and did extremely well with NBCU. The cable team um, has done extremely well with the cable business completely separately. There's, there's no way in which NBCU has really helped drive the growth that we've seen at the cable business. And now we're entering a period where those businesses need different things. Investors want cash flow from the cable business, and the media business really needs investment. Right. Um, it, it, if you look at what Disney and um, and Netflix are doing at the moment, you know the, the profitability in media isn't the most important thing. Building a massive library as quickly as possible, gaining global market share, global eyeballs, is is kind of what the the markets want media companies to do. And NBCU is held back in doing that because a, a lot of their investors wanna see uh, cash flow profitability. And so would be reluctant to see, see them um, uh, in, over invest in, in media. The Microsoft did the Activision deal uh, uh, last week. I can't remember if it was last week. Right. Last week or the week before. Um, it's all starting to blur. Comcast was rumored as a potential buyer of that asset. If they had been, the market would have hated it because it would have delayed cash returns. But for the media business, it actually could have been a brilliant deal. That's a sort of an, an area where we see strategic conflict um, really sort of impact what Comcast can do with its assets. That's a great point. This is so interesting. So you know, the reason why this is such an important example of the media industry right now is that 
again, in the past, it was, well, if you have the distribution and the content, then, you know, you sort of own that and you don't have to deal with it. Let, let me sort of put it differently. What does it mean for the rest of the media assets out there? Something like Netflix, which is, you know, not trading at the valuation it was uh, six months ago anymore. Um, the pure play sort of streaming media assets, what's going to be the future of them? Where do they go? Do they grow through acquisitions? Do they, you know, there's always speculation that big tech is going to be, a, you know, a takeover target. How do you see this evolving then on the pure play media side? So on the pure play media side, distribution has, has shifted. It's, it's, it is, I think it's become a game of how many eyeballs can you get connected to your content globally um, at subscription fees of whatever it is, seven, 10, 15, $20 a month. Um, and the, the bigger your global base of subscribers, the more you're in a position to invest in content. And then at the moment, it seems like it's, it, it's kind of an arms race. The more, um, the more subscribers you've got, the more you can invest in content, which makes it easier to go out and get more subscribers, which gives you a bigger war chest to invest in content. It becomes a, a, a virtuous cycle. And Disney and Netflix have a, a tremendous lead. Um, you know, ne Netflix stock is, is off because they're not growing at the pace that investors hoped they would be growing. Their, their growth rates are down from what they were uh, during the peak of the pandemic. But the, so, you know, relative to expectations, they're doing a little bit worse. But if you look at the underlying growth in their global subscriber base and just that the magnitude of their global subscriber base, uh, it's, pr it's, it's pretty incredible. And then you compare that to an asset like NBCU or Discovery or um, any of the other assets that are hoping for a place um, in, the, in, in the industry longer term. And it, it just it dwarfs their, their existing position. Um, and so the everything else in media is faced with a with a with a decision. Can we ramp up investment and catch up to Netflix and Disney and compete in that arena, or do we have to become a niche player um, focused on a, a specific market segment that does you know that, that's going to accept being much smaller than Netflix and Disney longer term, um, but does you know, builds a, a good profitable business in a specific niche. Yeah, um, there, there's so many different ones that I'm thinking of, like HBO Max and Viacom, yep. and you mentioned Discovery, and, you know, what leverage do they have on their own as, you know, as small players? Yep, and I would think that HBO Max, um, uh, you know, D Discovery with HBO has the hopes of, um, uh, being able to, to compete at the scale that Netflix and Disney does today. And NBCU probably does also. But for, for either one of those companies to, to be in that league, they've got to be in a position to, I, in my view, to, 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 to massively ramp up um, the, the pace at which they, they expand globally and the pace at which they invest in content. Um, and so that's, that's the, 
that's the, the, the big challenge for, for both of those companies. They're sort of at a pivot point now of, are they gonna try and, and um, hang on to uh, uh, Disney, and, uh, D Disney and Netflix and play in that league? Or are they gonna pivot to a different strategy where um, they're, uh, they're gonna accept being a smaller play player focused on a niche? Yeah. And does big tech have a role here to play? Because what, what one mental model is the old content plus distribution thing will come back to the fore, but it will be, you know, basically through Apple, for instance, okay, Apple TV is what I'm using here is the distribution case or, or Amazon or whatever, um, you know, Amazon Prime, and they will own content like, you know, Discovery, for instance. So it's, it's, they're both building content libraries organically, both Amazon and Apple are. And I would say at this stage, it's unclear that either one of those companies are gonna end up with a content library organically that's gonna put them in the same league as Disney and, right. and Netflix. And so the question is, do they sort of, at some and, and undoubtedly both companies are losing money on their content endeavors at the moment. If you look at the, the content business as a standalone. Um, and so the question for those companies is, do they still think they can accelerate their content business to get into the league of, of, of Disney and Netflix? If so, can they do it organically or do they have to make an, an acquisition? Do we see something like uh, discovery trade to one of the big tech companies, or you know, if NBCU was to be separated out, um, would that be a target for one of the big tech companies? I would say, Kelly, under this administration, that's got zero prospect yeah. of happening. I think the, the ability of big tech companies to do deals it, under this administration is, is going to be very limited. I think, again, this Microsoft Activision deal is going to be really interesting to watch. Um, so you know, if they're gonna, if they're going to make a play to be in the Disney Netflix lead league in content, uh, and it's going to be inorganic, it's going to have to wait for another administration. The the it, it's not crazy to think that they just abandoned the um, the, uh, the the content business at some some stage as well. Um, they, you know, they, they, they don't necessarily need it to drive their other businesses. We saw Google, for instance, get into the handset business once upon a time and recognize that having an operating system was plenty. They didn't actually need to manufacture um, handsets um, at, at scale, and they sort of more or less got out of that business. Um, and we could see them do, do the same with content. That's a great point. So let me then in our remaining minutes and, you know, there's, I'll just pick one final question to ask you, because I, I did think we were going to talk more about 5G, but if anyone wants, you know, they can go find our, our TV interview recently where we talked about, you know, some of the issues that exist or don't exist with the rollout and the FAA and, and all the rest of it. So that could be for another time. So let me just close by asking then, is there going to be a strong competitive threat you think coming from the likes of Elon Musk's Starlink 
In other words, for all that we just described and the investment needed for fixed broadband and whether or not you need media assets to go with it and all the rest of it, what happens if you can suddenly get your internet from satellites? So I don't think the, I, I don't think Starlink poses a threat to the broadband market in the US, Kelly. What Starlink is all about is providing connectivity to corners of the world that don't have connectivity today. And that, that's both a, a, a noble objective and a valuable objective for Starlink. Um, on a global basis, there are an enormous amount of households that have no connectivity to networks today or very poor co connectivity to networks. Um, and as, you know, particularly in emerging markets, as, as we see um, a, a rising middle class in, in a lot of emerging markets, I think that creates a compelling opportunity for Starlink. I think their opportunity in the US is limited today and will become more limited as the government fun, funds more infrastructure buildouts in areas with no fixed connectivity today. The, the announcement from AT&T yesterday was that they're offering five gigabits per second uh, 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 for their top tier of broadband over a fiber connection. That's where the market is, is heading. Starlink can barely deliver 100 megabits per second. Um, now that 100 megabits per second, if you've been struggling uh, at sort of one or two megabits per second on a DSL connection in, in some rural area, very distant from a network, um, that 100 megabits per second is a, is a huge improvement, but it's not competitive with the kind of products that, that cable and fiber companies are offering today. Um, and it's, it's, I don't think it'll, it will, will ever be competitive with those products. I think satellite systems will improve and be able to offer faster speeds, but we'll likely see much more rapid improvement in speeds delivered over fixed infrastructure. Starlink's expensive as well. For the kind of speed that it offers you, if you're in a cable market um, or a, um, a, a fiber market, you can get the, the same speed at, at much cheaper prices. There's an expensive installation required. You need a dish on your home. Uh, you need visibility of the southern sky. So it, you know, for, for, for areas with no choice, it's a great solution. But this isn't something that's going to undermine the, the fiber or the, 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 the cable business models. This is for areas with, with no connectivity from, uh, from, from other means. Fascinating. This has been just such a helpful description of the state of play in this whole communications industry, Jonathan. I really appreciate it. Uh, delight, delighted to do it, Kelly, anytime. All right, awesome. My guest again today was Jonathan Chaplin with New Street Research. Thanks for listening, everybody, and be sure to follow the Exchange podcast for more discussions like this and catch our show live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern only on CNBC. See you then. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. 
Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.